North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Korea Chair at CSIS. We hosted the sixth ROK U.S. Strategic Forum with the Korea Foundation on November 15th. And we would like to share the recordings of the event with you in these bonus episodes of the Impossible State Podcast. Okay, uh, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Kim Junyang again. I'm, I'm sorry to show you my face twice in a row, but I am more honored to be a moderator for the second sessions which is the titled Denuclearization and Peace on the Korean Peninsula. Is there a way forward? And I thought about this when I look at these questions. We have been asking the same question over and over again, still didn't get a chat and, you know, uh, answer. And then, you know, this morning, first Vice Minister uh, Choi talked about never give up. So <laughs> I don't want to give up asking this question. So maybe we can have, we can have uh, some clue or insight uh, to think creative. Uh, and we have a great line of panels. And uh, actually, you know, during the first session, I was expecting to come back to me one more time, but suddenly ended. So why don't we change a little bit of format? So at least two rounds or three rounds, if possible. So make your comment short uh, a little bit, and then we can talk more about issues. I will uh, introduce each one the, when, whenever they come to present. So not, you know, everybody in one, at once. First, Carol, I actually, I set out several questions beforehand, and then I categorize into three. And first question is, is like, where are we now? Where are we now? And diagnosing, uh, nosing the current situation and forecasting the next six months, because six months are, are in the Moon government has six months left, and I, I don't wanna, we don't wanna uh, forecast the long period of time. So for the next six months, and who and what will be the key to move on from the current deadlock? So this is the first category of questions, and uh, uh, you can present yourself. First presenter, let's see, uh, next to me, Dr. Yun Young-Gwan is the Kimgo visiting professor in the, in the Department of Government at Harvard University. Uh, previously, he was senior visiting scholar with the Korea Project at the Harvard Beller Center for Science and International Affairs from December 2020 to June 2021. He's also professor emeritus in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Seoul National University. From 2003 to 2004, he served as a Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade of Republic of Korea before joining the faculty of Seoul National University in 1990. He taught at the University of California Davis for three years. I have a long list of his resume, so I'll stop here and give him a stage 
floor is yours. Thank you very yes. much, uh, Professor Kim Joon-young, for your very kind introduction. And uh, it's my great pleasure, and thank you for having me uh, in this uh, very important uh, conference. Well, as we all know, I mean, we, are, we have been in, in, in kind of a stalemate for uh, at least two years since the end of Hanoi summit. And there was no progress in terms of uh, denuclearization, and there was no improvement of bilateral relationship uh, between the United States and North Korea, and uh, inter-Korean relationship, uh, maybe there was some, but still, uh, I mean, uh, we are in a difficult situation. And the U.S. I mean, government, uh, the Biden administration has been uh, saying, for example, Ambassador Sung Kim has been uh, saying that uh, the U.S. is open uh, to dialogue without any condition at any time with North Korea. But frankly speaking, I feel that I mean, their plate is uh, already full. I mean, there are so many things to cover, so m much more urgent issues there, uh, there are. And North Koreans, uh, I mean, they say that uh, I mean, basically what is important is the end of hostile policy of the United States. And uh, I, I wonder whether they are really interested in the end of, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, declaration of uh, end of Korean War. And uh, so far, they have been, I mean, restraining their behavior, and they have not yet um, made any uh, significant uh, provocations, such as nuclear test or ICBM. But nobody knows. Uh, how long they will uh, restrain their behavior. Uh, South Korean government, uh, I mean, uh, they seem to be quite uh, interested in facilitating uh, resumption of the U.S.-North Korea dialogue, for example, through taking some measures like uh, declaration of the end of Korean War. Uh, but uh, they have only six months left, so uh, I don't know whether uh, their efforts will, uh, will be successful or, or not. In other words, uh, we are in a kind of stalemate uh, which seems somewhat stable from a, a short-term tactical perspective, but from a long-term uh, I mean, strategic perspective, which may be working disadvantageously in terms of uh, U.S. strategic interest in their region. Uh, if we continue uh, to be in this kind of stalemate for a long time, probably I'm afraid the relative influence of the United States will be weakening while the relative influence of China will be increasing. So I'm concerned. I'm concerned about that. Our next uh, speaker will be uh, Sumi Terry, Dr. Sumi Terry. She is director of Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy at Wilson Center. She was a former senior fellow with the Korea chair at the Center for uh, CSIS here. Dr. Terry was a senior analyst on Korean issues at the CIA from 2001 to 2008. She was the director for Korea, Japan, and Oceania Affairs at the National Security Council under President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama between 2008 and 2009. Actually, she is a, she's a, almost like a star in Korean. I saw her face 
every other day in North Korea <laughs> news. So and congratulations on your uh, new job and the floor is yours. Thank you so much. And thanks to Victor, CSIS, and Korea Foundation for having me here, even though I defected. Um, <laughs> and so it's great to be here and be part of this panel distinguished panelists, and I know everyone here has been looking at the Korean issue for a very long time, so I really appreciate this. I, after having followed North Korea for how many decades, I feel now more, there's more humility, like I don't know. I don't have answers, I don't know where we are headed. And I, I read everybody's, and I, I just read Minister Yoon's wonderful piece on national interests on how we need a board strategy. I'm not sure if you're going to necessarily agree on what we should do next, but I think we can agree on where we are today. And I do agree with Minister Yoon's comments right now that obviously we are in an impasse, again, after three decades of dealing with North Korea and after five U.S. presidents, a very different U.S. presidents and very different policies we have pursued from bilateral negotiations to multilateral access of evil to, you know, Bank of Delta Asia, to strategic patience, to maximum pressure, and even meeting with Kim Jong-un three times. And here we are again having this conversation on where we are. So we are in an impasse, and I would argue that I agree with Minister Yoon in, that, in the sense that while there might be, you know, okay, there's no nuclear test and ICBM test, and I'm going to leave this part to Richard because he's the professional on this, but we are at a worse point, I would argue, uh, because North Korea has been making advancement on its both its nuclear and missile program. That's what they've been doing the last few years. And last recent spate of tests show that they are trying to diversify their missile program and frustrate U.S. missile deficits and so on. So I do think we are worse off. And after having done, gone through the summitry and having sat down with Kim and having the Hanoi summit failed, our options, U.S. options, are getting even more limited. So, realistically speaking, so I don't think we are, so again, here we are, we are an impasse, but we are even worse off. I know that President Moon, with six months left in office, you know, he's making valiant effort to really make progress with North Korea. And I do think it's important to have this conversation, even though we might not agree exactly um, on the pros and cons of having a peace declaration right now with North Korea. Although I do buy Victor's earlier comment, what he was trying to get at is, do I necessarily think that North Korea is going to be like, sure, that's all I need, and we need a peace declaration, and this is the one thing that we've been missing last three decades, and now we can make progress. I'm highly doubtful, because one thing that we, you know, one good thing that came out of the Hanoi summit is that we understand what Kim wants, and Kim wants significant sanctions relief. So unless we are willing to give that, I'm not quite sure necessarily that peace declaration would, that's going to be it. And, and North Korea's going to say, okay, now, now that's the, that's going to get us starting the right framework and so on. So that's where we are. And in terms of your question, the second part of the question of you asked us to predict what's going to happen in the next six months. I mean, you know, one thing about also far having followed North Korea for many years is I don't think they're all that unpredictable. So I can, you know, it's going to be an interesting six months because there is South Korea presidential election in South Korea. Clearly, Kim would want progressive candidate to win just because of their policy stance. Once more pro-engagement in the other conservative party is a little bit more, you know, less so. Uh, so 
you know, it'll be interesting how Kim cal calculates that he should best influence South Korean election, although I do think South Korean public now is so sophisticated and they're so focused on domestic issues, I'm not sure if they're going to be all that much swayed by whatever North Koreans choose to do. But my prediction is that they are going to continue at this spot of very, Kim found this very sweet spot of provocations and returning to some sort of testing campaign, but it's not, it doesn't really merit an overreaction. Uh, this is a nice sweet spot for Kim. And be alternating between that and you know, sort of giving out peace fillers to South Korea um, to see where, where he can land. Beijing Olympics might be a good venue, just like Pyeongchang Olympics served as a good venue for if Kim is interested in having a sit down, that might be a good venue. But I, I, I think this is sort of, that's what they're going to, he's going to do. He's going to continually alternate. And North Korea's strategic goals have not changed and they remain consistent, which are getting international acceptance of North Korea as a nuclear weapons power, getting us comfortable living with North Korea's nuclear weapons. And then secondly, I do think Kim does want to split the alliance. So I think that's what he's going to do, is continually sort of alternate back and forth. And I'll just end with this comment. There's some criticism with the Biden administration's policy in terms of what are they doing? You know, this is, they keep saying, we're not this, we're not that, we're not, we're not doing strategic patience, we're not doing maximum pressure, but what is that exactly? There are no details. But I do think that one thing that the Biden administration is doing correctly is that they mean it when they say they're going to, they are going to work very closely with their allies. So I do see the Biden administration working very closely with the Blue House and with Japan and South Korea going back and forth. At least maybe not much has been accomplished, but there's a lot of coordination and transparency back and forth. And I think that's a very good thing. Thank you very much. I think, it, yeah, you're right. I, when I heard you know, from Blue House and for MOFI, actually, they say all kinds of levels, they talk to each other. So sometimes they don't, don't, don't have anything to discuss anymore. It's jokingly they said. But somehow it's nothing kind of came out of it. And actually one, one point you made is, you know, North Korea can help progressive candidate for coming elections. But in history, at the opposite side actually, they did something actually uh, when it ironically or maybe they intended to help Conservative, maybe they are symbiotic, uh, high, you know, hostility of symbiosis, I call it. <laughs> Anyways, okay, and then the question about the, the Beijing Olympic and the role of China, actually, I saved it for the last, so I'm gonna back, go get back to you if we have time for that. And third presenter, let me introduce Dr. Shin Sung Ho. He's a professor of international security and the director of the International Security Center at the Graduate School of International Studies, Seoul National University. Previously, he was a visiting fellow at East-West Center, Washington, D.C., CNAPS fellow at the Brookings Institution, an assistant research professor at the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies, Honolulu, Hawaii, and a research fellow at the Institute for Foreign Policy Analysis, uh, Cambridge MA Dr. Sheen has taught at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Dr. Sheen, for a very nice introduction. First of all, it's so nice to be back in Washington, D.C. My last travel to D.C. was like more than one and a half years ago. So I guess this is pretty much the same for most of the Korean delegation. It's been a long time, I guess. And I guess my American colleague also, maybe you're longing to come back to Seoul sometime. 
I hope we will have that kind of uh, you know, back and forth active exchange between uh, uh, Seoul and Washington. Maybe this is the beginning of going back to normalcy both in DC. And when I watched last night Sunday night football on TV, everybody was you know wearing the I mean no mask in tens of thousands packed stadium. So unreal is still in Korea at the moment. But I think this is a good sign. After listening to all my uh, you know, uh, previous uh, presenters, I, I also happen to be on the same page, most of, uh, of what they say about denuclearization, the, the dealing with North Korean regime. But because they are still, you know, kind of to cheer up to some mood in this room, I, I would like to maybe suggest some new, I mean, different perspective. Not that I'm just kind of naive enough to believe all kinds of uh, miracles on the Korean Peninsula, but let me talk about the three, uh, I think, I believe important political calendar regarding this event in the coming months and uh, year. The first of all, obviously, uh, the Beijing Olympic uh, uh, next year in the February, start uh, February 4th. So speaking of this end of Korean War declaration, I guess uh, there is some speculation in Seoul at this moment that obviously we, knew, we know that the current uh, outgoing president Moon Jae-in, maybe his last wish would be to have this great ceremony at least with uh, maybe him and President Biden and maybe Chairman Kim and even Xi Jinping. Who knows what will happen in next? He has about uh, five months left in his office, but definitely he would like to, you know, uh, want to have uh, his lasting legacy as a as a president who really uh, uh, pushed for this kind of engaging North Korea, building uh, at least starting a kind of peace process on the Korean Peninsula, which. Vice Minister Choi uh, Jong-un talked about this morning. Obviously, the second is, but uh, so who knows what will happen in, in the opening ceremony of Beijing Olympic, who will show up. Obviously, the Chinese government may want to have President Moon, but most of all, maybe they want to have President Biden, but who else will show, we will see. The second, but how the North Korean will react, of course, respond. Uh, that uh, one uh, complicating thing is, as already, already before, we have a uh, uh, you know upcoming presidential election in South Korea, which is set to for the uh, 9th of March, so a month after Beijing opening ceremony. And of course, North Korea obviously watching carefully who is going to be the next president. So if I were Kim Jong Un, even if Kim Jong Un has a very good you know personal relation with the President Moon, still he may want to see until. Who will become the uh, you know owner of next blue house? And obviously we have uh, this four, about four months of horse racing between the two candidates from the governing party and opposition party, and the, it's, the race is very tight at the moment. So no one knows there's a both possibility, and each of these candidates has their own uh, view on North Korea policy, which maybe if, but it's quite general that. Uh, Obviously, governing party candidate tend to be more for the engagement, whereas the opposition party candidate, Yoon sang yeol is more of a aligned with the general conservative line of uh, you know, uh, North Korea policy. So we will see. That's, but still, that's another important, I think, calendar to watch. Finally, the, the third calendar, I think it is important, is in both U.S. and China. The November next year, U.S. has a midterm election. In China, uh, they have a 20th Party Congress. And every sign indicates that President Xi Jinping wants to have his position <laughs> uh, sealed. 
for the next term, which will break away from the you know, tradition of a Chinese party, leadership change and all that. And that means, but at the same time, uh, I guess the, both Washington and Beijing will be very much preoccupied with their own domestic calendar, obviously for this good reason. And in that regard, I see that, I suspect they may want to have any kind of uh, you know, trouble coming out of Korean Peninsula or East Asia. I mean, speaking of in the U.S.-China strategic competition, there is an intensifying, there's a rivalry and all that. But at the same time, all politics are local, you know. <laughs> and to me, uh, in that regard, it reminds me of, again, uh, back in 2017, under the previous U.S. administration, Korea was the hotspot. Back in 2017, everybody was talking, if there's any war, it will be the Korean Peninsula. Thank God now, Korea is not on the top of that list. People talk about Taiwan or South China Sea, even in case of US-China. So I, I, I suspect maybe then maybe the continuing kind of trends, at least even both Washington and Beijing, that they don't want to see any kind of new crisis on the Korean Peninsula next year. So maybe that may give us a, some kind of uh, you know, break for South Korean government. Whoever comes into the presidential office, Blue House, they will still try to stabilize the situation, especially given this, all this pandemic going on. Everybody is worried about economy and all that still. So maybe still, in, in that sense, obviously in that uh, sense, the good part of this, what will happen, how it will go, it depends on Kim Jong-un, and no one knows what he's up to. But at least we have a relatively kind of, to me, stable kind of foundation for the concerned parties in the region to engage rather than confront North Korea. Of course, we all know that they will not easily give up their nuclear program. There will be lots of North Korean tactics to drive a wedge between U.S. and R.O.K. and all that. But I'm quite sure whoever becomes the next occupancy of Blue House, they will try to work with the American government counterpart. That's one thing that I'm quite sure. So on that, uh, I, I would like to leave on a little bit of positive note for the uh, prospect of on the Korean Peninsula in the coming months. Our final panelist is Mr. Richard Johnson. He is a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction, an Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense at the U.S. Department of Defense. Prior to his appointment at the Department of Defense, he served as the Senior Director for Fuel Cycle and Verification at the Nuclear Threat Initiative and the Assistant Coordinator and Deputy Lead Coordinator for Iran Nuclear Implementation at the U.S. Department of State. And I say, it kind of saved him for the last because he's expert on nuclear issues, he's expert on North Korea, an expert on Iran, so, and he's the only one who is really tackling with this North Korean issue right now, and he's a government official, so maybe he can give a better picture with it more accuracy. <laughs> thank you very much, Jong Hyun, and thank you so much to CSIS, especially to my good friend, Dr. Cha, and uh, also to the Korea Foundation, Dr. Lee Gun, for, for inviting me today. Uh, it's very nice, as, as others have said, to be back in person and, and to see a lot of uh, smiling faces, even if the topic that we're discussing is a, a very serious one. So, so thank you very much. You asked, uh, you know, kind of where do we stand? And I think it is important, uh, though Dr. Terry mentioned it a little bit, to come back to where we stand from a U.S. policy perspective and then talk a little bit about where that has taken us to today. So uh, just to recall, the, the Biden-Harris administration, as one of its first acts, uh, undertook 
to do a new North Korea policy review. And I was a part of that review when I came into government. I came in a little bit later, but I was part of it uh, starting in March of this year. And it's important to recall that after doing a, a very intensive look at our policy, that, that we've landed in an important place. And that is that, first of all, we have reaffirmed uh, our commitment to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But we also have an understanding that past efforts, as has been mentioned before, have not achieved this objective. And so you know, we understand that we have to focus on something that's not a grand bargain, not strategic patience, as you said, but something that is practical and something that takes a calibrated approach and that includes uh, being open to and exploring diplomacy with the DPRK. Uh, Minister Yoon mentioned the comments from my former boss, Ambassador Sung Kim, but also working to make sure that whatever we do is increasing the security of not only the United States, but of our allies, particularly our regional allies in South Korea and Japan, and our deployed forces there and around the world. And I should just note here that uh, my, my key role here at the Department of Defense is focused primarily on the countering WMD side and the nuclear side of things, which includes not only supporting the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, but also enforcing UN Security Council sanctions resolutions and also overseeing missile threat reduction, WMD threat reduction, and very importantly, our strong and credible extended deterrence commitments to our partners and allies. And I think that is something that is very important to this equation and needs to not be forgotten when we're talking about this issue. And so there's a balance that we have to achieve. Dr. Terry mentioned uh, where we are in terms of the last six months or the last year in terms of North Korea's development of its nuclear missile programs. And, and I would agree that we see a worsening in regards to increasing technical sophistication on behalf of the DPRK. Uh, we've seen what the North Koreans claim to be a, a hypersonic glide vehicle test. In recent months, we've seen uh, advancements in the submarine launch ballistic missile realm. All of this is a concern, not only to the United States, but frankly to South Korea and Japan and that regional stability. And I think we have to recall that the security and stability of the Korean Peninsula is intimately, inextricably tied to regional security and stability. And it connects very much back to the previous panel that talked about US and China relations. One of the things that I, is part of my duties and I think needs to be considered, and this was also a part of the DPRK policy review, was the idea that while we are seeking a practical, calibrated approach that, that is including of and inclusive of diplomacy as our first tool of resort, that we cannot give up on, at the same time, fully implementing and making sure that we are upholding the UN sanctions regime and US bilateral sanctions. Um, because these tools are very important, not only as a signaling device, and, and, it's, and sanctions are not a punishment. Sanctions are a tool to prevent and reduce threats and to counter proliferation. And so I think it's important to recall that we will continue to do that we are doing that now, and, and at the Department of Defense, one of the things that we do in support of that is to actually spearhead an effort where we're joined by seven other nations, including Australia, Canada, France, Japan, New Zealand, and of course South Korea, along with the UK, to enforce the resolutions, particularly preventing North Korea from receiving illicit refined petroleum and helping to deny the revenue from illicit sources that come from their WMD and missile programs. And so that effort will continue and it needs to be underway. In terms of where we're going from here, I would just say, I think the United States has shown truly its commitment to reaching out to the DPRK, uh, to speaking with them diplomatically. But we've also shown, as has been pointed out by others on the panel, that we will do so 
in line with what President Biden has said very clearly and repeatedly, which is our effort to reinvigorate and modernize our alliances, particularly our alliances with South Korea and Japan. And so while we will see diplomacy as a tool of first resort, we will not let this diplomacy take a backseat to our efforts to make sure that we are upholding our commitments to those allies and partners. So in short, we've made very clear our interest in reaching out. But in the meantime, if we're not getting feedback from the DPRK and understanding that COVID is, a, is an important component of this, then we, will ha we have to do other things to make sure that we up uphold and maintain strategic stability in the region and protect our allies and partners. And so we will look forward to proceeding on whichever track is the right one. And I know that Ambassador Kim and my colleagues at the State Department are doing all that they can to engage with our partners and allies, and as you said, meeting very, very regularly. But in the meantime, as they say in English, it takes two to tango. So we look forward to seeing if we have a dance partner that wants to come to the floor, but we will not stand idly by and ignoring the threats that we see from North Korea's actions, both in its nuclear and its missile program. And I will close by also saying something that is often overlooked, but is an important part of my portfolio, which is that the DPRK, we assess, is also undertaking offensive chemical and biological weapons programs, which are a serious threat to uh, not only to the Korean Peninsula, but to the region, including to US forces. And we're all living today, I'm looking out onto an audience that I'm very happy to see everybody is wearing their masks. But um, if you think that COVID was a difficult challenge, there are many other concerns that you could have in that regard. And we should not forget that as a component of our strategy. We, have, we spent uh, half of our session wisely, so we can have a second round. And second round, the question seems a little stupid, but let's ask that. Does Washington truly want to denuclearize North Korea? It seems odd, but sometimes in, in Korea, cynically, people say, if you emphasize denuclearization at once or CVID, which is so hard to achieve, that means you don't really want to de denuclearize in your mind. So maybe it's a cynical uh, statement, because I raised this question because I have some kind of feeling that in Washington, either moderate who try to solve the problem with dialogue, through dialogue, and, uh, and the hardliners want to pressure North Korea until they surrender. But somehow, they're approached consensus that North Korea is not going to denuclearize. Of course, solution is different, but somehow they, so is it cynicism or is it really, that means it's ironically it can, you know, help North Korea to keep the nuclear weapon. You know, uh, sanction is not going to work or going to make North Korea collapse in the near future. And the dialogue is gonna take a long time. So maybe, you know, this, and another question is follow-up follow question is, can the Korean government persuade these doubtful and busy Washington politicians to seriously solve the problem through dialogue with Pyongyang? Because some people say this North Korean issue is very important issue and even critical issue, but doesn't seem like it's urgent issue. For example, U.S. approach is just come to, to the negotiating table. We can talk anything unconditionally. It's not going to work to uh, call North Korea to the table because they had a traumatic experience at Hanoi. So they want to 
have some kind of solid promise before they come to to the table. But U.S. look at it as a sacrifice, even though North Korea is doing anything. So, for example, you know, end of the declaration and things like that. So, still, this uh, postures continues. That means North Korea is not going to come to the table. So, this is my second question. Start with the minister. Really interesting and uh, at the same time a a, a little bit provocative (laughs) question. Let me answer this way. I have never uh, been suspicious of the true intention of of the American side for their purpose of denuclearizing North Korea. What I am thinking is that it's time for us to take uh, some steps away from the current situation and uh, review what our policy, I mean, why our uh, traditional and conventional policy didn't work in the last uh, 30 years. I think the traditional approach has been based on three characteristics. One is on the assumption that uh, China would continue to share the common interest in denuclearizing North Korea. I'm not sure. I'm also not sure whether China will cooperate in coming years. I'm somewhat skeptical. And nowadays, they seem to be trying to link the North Korean issue to other issues, international issues not related to the Korean Peninsula. So a little bit skeptical on that issue. And the second uh, characteristic of the conventional approach has been some kind of uh, moralistic and coercive approach. What I'm saying is, uh, basically, traditional approach tended to view North Korea as a bad guy and into uh, action between North Korea and the United States and North Korea and South Korea is a kind of bad guy, good guy relationship rather than action-reaction uh, interaction. So somewhat morally charged. It's understandable because definitely uh, North Korea violated international rules of uh, non-proliferation and uh, defected from uh, so many previous agreements with international society and South Korea. However, to solve the problem, I think we need a kind of uh, a little, uh, I mean, a less moralistic approach and uh, kind of a more detached uh, approach uh, from a kind of a third person's eye perspective. Perspective. What I'm saying is, pushing North Korea, you do some uh, take uh, take some positive uh, measures in terms of denuclearization, then we will I mean, reward your uh, I mean, uh, cooperation. And that kind of approach cannot work because there is a kind of so-called security dilemma problem uh, I mean, embedded in this North Korea issue. Uh, so kind of uh, simultaneous uh, action I mean, principle may be necessary. Of course, uh, Ambassador Began mentioned about that new approach in his Stanford uh, address, but I think uh, there was not much opportunity for him to really apply that principle in the negotiation uh, in Hanoi. A third characteristic is, is narrow focus on only on security dimension, nuclear uh, aspect. 
probably not taking much attention to the other related important uh, issues like economic dimension or diplomatic dimension of North Korea issue. So it was not a comprehensive approach. And uh, I think we need to depart from a traditional approach based on these three kind of characteristics or assumptions. And otherwise, uh, I think Chinese influence on the Korean Peninsula will be gradually increasing because U.S. Uh, traditional approach pushed North Korea in the orbit of China for the last uh, two decades or three decades or something like that. And uh, when, even when North Koreans really don't trust much China, I think that kind of uh, important point was not taken seriously by the U.S. policymakers, and there was no strategic effort to, I mean, utilize that kind of, uh, I mean, delicate uh, relationship between China and North Korea. North Korean leaders may be very much concerned about their too heavy uh, dependence on China politically and economically. So uh, they really want to, uh, I mean, improve relationship uh, with the United States. But that aspect has been, uh, I mean, disregarded and uh, denied opportunities. I mean, so my position is that we need to take a new approach, a kind of bold approach, which focuses on changing the nature of U.S. DPRK political relationship. Otherwise, there will be no trust between two countries at all, and. Even, I mean, I mean, uh, if that kind of very low level of this, I mean, uh, uh, trust continues, another successful nuclear agreement will not be kept by North Korea. Probably in one year or two years, there will be another defection by that country. So I think we need to take a new approach, which focuses on changing the bilateral relationship between the United States and North Korea. And we have several measures which we can consider. For example, a declaration of the end of the Korean War is one measure. But I think uh, just one uh, standalone action regarding, I mean, declaration of peace cannot work. I mean, it should be implemented from a broader strategic perspective in relation to other measures like establishing a liaison office in uh, Pyongyang and Washington, D.C., and trying to build a uh, military confidence between two countries, or inviting North Koreans to this country to educate about how, I mean, market capitalism works, uh, some other measures. So I think we need a, a new or systematic, uh, bold approach focusing on changing the bilateral relationship and that there is not much time left. Probably if the current situation continues sometime next year, I guess probably North Korea may provoke. I mean, testing nuclear weapons or launching ICBM. I think we need to, t we can take that kind of bold approach before that time comes. And once North Korea makes that kind of provocation, U.S. will have no, uh, I mean, choice actually, other than taking a kind of very strong, I mean, response against that uh, provocation. Then probably 
the situation will become worsened. Mr. Yoon talked about that we have to give up the more moralistic approach. And then actually, I wrote a book review of Donna Gregg, who was ambassador to Korea, U.S. ambassador to Korea. The last sentence is, one of the, the reasons for the failure dealing with the enemies is to demonize the enemies. Uh, actually, it reminds uh, me of that uh, phrase. And he talked about the new kind of approach. And the, why don't, uh, Dr. Terry, you can answer that. Is it possible to go along with this new uh, approach to North Korea with the question that I originally gave you? So, I mean, I don't disagree with many things that Minister Yoon said. He said we need a bold approach. But the devil is in the details, right? So I think even in that piece on for the national interest, you said that we need to maintain sanctions, which I agree with. And so if we do maintain sanctions, and I made pre comments previously, Kim wants sanctions lifted. So how do we get to this bold approach? Right now we saw a recent spate of tests that Richard talked about. And we do have our own domestic politics. We have election coming up. So President Biden, even though this deal that Trump came offered to President Trump in Hanoi was not good enough even for President Trump, just realistic domestically, President Biden is supposed to, in the recent, North Korea conducts tests. And we say we are ready to meet with North Koreans anytime without precondition and do what? Like we, we just going to declare peace and we are going to open liaison office. By the way, I, Alex, I see Alex Wong here. Uh, I believe that we were willing to give end of world peace declaration and open liaison offices. That was all sort of in the package that we were going to offer. It's just that it fell apart because Kim demanded significant amount of sanctions being to be lifted in Hanoi. So I understand that we need a new board approach and I don't disagree with that. I guess my dilemma is how do we get realistically get there at this point where we are? And I don't think, you know, I'm not trying to necessarily defend the Biden administration. You can do that. But it's not like they, they're coming in with some ultra hardline approach. They said, we're willing to meet with Kim. But I, you know, so I just don't, I can't square this how domestically that we can, we can also just, we just need a new board approach. So here's a peace declaration and we're going to open liaison offices, even though you're continually conducting tests and improving, advancing your nuclear weapons and missile program. So I guess we need to figure out how do we get there. So it, I, I don't disagree with the, the sort of the philosophy or the main thrust of what you're saying, Minister Yun. Also, China angle, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we have a tendency to try to rely on China, and China has not been helpful. Although we did see China actually implementing sanctions after years of dragging its feet in the fall of 2017, and we can talk about why that is. But that, if China was helpful then, it's no longer helpful. And I think that trying to keep on relying on China to solve the problem has not been, I don't see that also in the future. On the security dilemma piece, I understand that they have a security dilemma, and of course they have pursued nuclear weapons as an ultimate deterrent card against the United States, because even a powerful country like the United States will not attack North Korea if there are nuclear weapons power. But I'm not entirely certain and sold that their security dilemma will be resolved with just a peace declaration. South Koreans also say that peace declaration does not really mean much. It's just a symbolic thing, and it's not a peace treaty. It doesn't have legal binding. It's not this and that. And, but if it's so not that important, what makes North Koreans feel like now their security dilemma is solved necessarily with a peace declaration? And I would argue that 
fundamentally for the Kim regime, as long as rival South Korean state that is freer and richer exists, their security dilemma continues. So I, I understand that there's a security dilemma. I understand that's part of the reason why they pursue nuclear weapons, but it's not the all of it, right? Nuclear weapons also is a rallying point ideologically. It gives them prestige. It gives them influence. There's a whole host of reasons why they have nuclear weapons. So now going back to your first in original question on is U.S. serious about denuclearization. I do think that we are, we shouldn't be that cynical. I do think the U.S. government is serious about wanting denuclearization. And I don't believe the U.S. government is going to abandon denuclearization, seeking denuclearization as a goal, because even though North Korea have nuclear weapons, and even though it is sort of a defective nuclear weapons power, by adopting that as a policy, it has serious implications, including potentially a regional proliferation in the future that could, you know, some South Korean conservatives are already talking about bringing tactical nuclear weapons back or pursuing nuclear weapons. And then there's Japan. I mean, that's just one reason. There's a whole host of reasons why U.S. would never adopt it. But saying that and is wanting denuclearization as a goal, that's still different from accurate assessment and the reality of the situation, which is that North Korea is highly unlikely to give it up. I mean, I don't think that's being overly cynical to come to that assessment. It's not because you, you want North Korea to keep nuclear weapons. It's because that's the reality of the situation after having dealt with North Korea for three decades. So I don't want to end it with that cynicism. I do think that the goal is still denuclearization. And I don't disagree with Minister Yoon. It's just that how do we figure out the details? And again, I'll end with on peace declaration. I'm so glad to see that Blue House and the Biden administration is working very hard to coordinate, at least have a very frank conversation about the pros and cons about a peace declaration. So I, I'm, it's as good as we can do is closely coordinating with each other. Yeah, if I take the position of Devers advocate, it's kind of, a, sounds to me, it's, it's like an Aesop Favreau's, the new king's new clothes. So they have nuclear weapon and, and then no solution to denuclearize and somehow it's just going on like a strategic patience. And question for you, additional question is, actually, if I'm, I was not mistaken, in several occasions you are pretty critical about current Biden's practical calibrate approach. He said it's good, everything is right, but it's not, don't, doesn't have any starter to uh, resume the process. I, it was my wrong evaluation, or still you have that? I do think it's, it, criticism is a strong word uh, in front of my <laughs> I'm colleagues. I'm not actually uh, but, making you to fight. No, but, no <laughs> but, but what I do think it's ironic is the insistence that this is not strategic patience. Because it sounds very much like strategic patience to me. Just because if you're not going to give sanctions relief, if you don't want to, uh, so it's, it's, it's not, the reality is that is what I'm trying to say. So it's fine to rhetorically say this is very different from Trump administration. This is very different from the Obama administration. And so that's what I'm sort of just pointing out is that in trying to figure out what it is, it doesn't seem all that different. I'm not necessarily criticizing it because I don't have any other brilliant solution. It's not like I have a lot of solutions in my bag and saying, oh, they're not pursuing that. I understand the limits of this problem, having worked on this issue. Never give up. <laughs> the thing is, we all know that it's not going to be easy. And we all know that North Korea is not going to easily give up nuclear weapon. But at the same time, what's the alternative? I mean, acknowledging North Korea as a de facto or real nuclear power, what's the consequences? 
We all know that, as uh, Dr. Terry just uh, said, we are going to see a nuclear arms race in the region, starting very from the South Korea. I mean, recently, there was a ASEAN survey saying that, and we have, yes, indeed, presidential race going on. There is a back and forth. Speaking of extended deterrence, uh, South Korea's, how much we are sure about the American you know, commitment and all that, the, this debate, quite live debate going on. But the point was that the takeaway, and it is ironic that the, the traditional the opposition party, the conservative, they are the one who is not very much sure about the U.S. extended deterrence. So there has been some call for maybe, yes, maybe bringing back the U.S. tactical nuclear weapon, which is no, no you know, starter for American government position, or nuclear co-sharing, that's another kind of uh, you know, Korean way of uh, thinking, but American doesn't seem to be on the page. What's the alternative than the indigenous Korean nuclear program? And, and that they quote that ASEAN poll, in fact, that has been conducted uh, last September, just two months ago, and 70% of South Koreans saying that we have to have, if indeed North Korea becomes, oh, already is a de facto nuclear power. That is because, but at the same time, that's awesome same poll that conducted in 2018, just three years ago, the supporting support for the indigenous program was like a, about 50%. Still maybe strong, but way below than 70%. Why? Because that uh, 2018, the things were going quite rather well in terms of uh, nuclear negotiation and all those symmetry between American government and Kim Jong-un and all that. So that just shows you that the moment American government gave up you know, the denuclearization, obviously this a uh, wake-up call for the South Korean government, the public, and there will be push for uh, those kinds of movements. And that's not obviously in the U.S. interest. So I, I don't think it is in the U.S. interest to give up whatever it takes, bold approach, a small approach, a practical approach, or pragmatic approach. No, we should not give up uh, denuclearizing North Korea. And I think that has been the South Korean government position all along. All along. And uh, the two lasting uh, point is that the, so next year will be the 30th anniversary of uh, 92 joint declaration between the two Koreas about complete denuclearization or nuclear-free Korean Peninsula. By the way, that joint declaration was not done in the, under the liberal government. It was Lotewo president, who, by the way, passed away just a couple of weeks ago. So it's going to be 30 years. Maybe it takes another 30 years before we get in, go back to all that. But shouldn't that keep up? And the second point is that of course, how can we trust North Korean regime and all kinds of uh, rhetoric? But at least uh, the fact of the matter is, as much as they are in for this nuclear development and all this missile testing, all that, and provocation, but Kim Jong-un himself said officially twice in the Panmunjom Declaration. By the way, there was the first time the North Korean leader was discussing the nuclear issue with the South Korean counterpart. And in written you know, document, they committed for the denuclearization. And of course, the following Singapore, so everybody talks about Hanoi. Before Hanoi, there was Singapore. And there were also Kim Jong-un, at least in, in principle, if, of course, the conditions, the Americans' hostile in intentions are completely gone, then they are still committed, uh, they are willing to denuclearize. I think that maybe still uh, give us a 
certain level of hope. And on that, maybe I think close coordination between Korea and Seoul and Washington. We should keep trying and find a way to denuclearize Korean Peninsula, not nuclear arms race. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Uh, Shin. If I, I think it's going to be a shame that if I ask you, do you really want to denuclearize North Korea? Let me change my, let me revise my question a little bit. So there is criticism. You know, there was a worry that actually by the administration they would go for, they would go for uh, dialogue and negotiation, but a revival of a strategic patience, even though Obama people deny they never had that policy. But anyways, after one year, nothing much happening. And of course, yeah, we all know that because, you know, North Korea is not uh, responding. So, but there is, it's kind of this practical calibrate approach, like it sounds like or looks like passive. Why don't you try to more proactive to bring North Korea to the table, not just saying we can't talk without condition? That's my question. Okay. Well, thank you. But I'll, I'll go back to your original question, which is to say, of course, the United States wants to achieve the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And I will tell you that this is something, it, it wasn't just sort of a check the box exercise that we said, well, obviously, that's the outcome. In the policy review, we, we looked at all of these factors. We looked at how do you phrase these sorts of things. So the, the short answer to you is, yes, we want to do that. And, and to your additional question, I guess what I would say is, you know, I was also in the Obama administration. Uh, actually, this is my fourth administration that I've served in. Three of those were as a civil servant, and including during the time of so-called strategic patience. And I do think we're in a different place here. I think that, you, you know, it, it's important to recall where we were in the Obama administration, where very early on in the administration, the North Koreans conducted some pretty terrible uh, tests, missile and nuclear tests, after the president had said that he was open to dialogue. Uh, and, and we also had things like the Leap Day deal that, that did not go very well. And so recall how you got to strategic patience. It was after outreach. It was after diplomacy. And so you know, I hope that we will not see provocations from our North Korean counterparts, if you will. But the reality is that strategic patience involved basically demonstrating or signaling that you know, essentially, don't call us, we'll call you. And now I think we're in a place where I know the phraseology, you know, people wonder what it means, practical, calibrated, but I think it means what it says it means, which is that, you know, we're prepared to take practical steps in a calibrated manner, including diplomacy. And I think if you look at the work that Ambassador Kim is doing, and I will certainly defer to my State Department colleagues on, on that, because that's not my area of responsibility anymore, but I think it demonstrates that we are prepared to take certain steps. But again, we have to have a negotiating partner. And I think the other difference we have from the Obama administration and frankly even from the Trump administration is COVID. And um, we have a real challenge, I think, on our hands to figure out even you know, the mechanism, the place, the time, you know, all those sorts of things would be an, an important component. Let me just add a couple more quick things because I know we're at the end. I, I'm an LA Dodger fan, so I think I'm playing the Justin Turner role here as, as, as the uh, cleanup batter, but I'm, I'm not sure. We change our lineup too much. Two more quick things. One is because extended deterrence was mentioned, and I think it's really important to reiterate how much this is an important factor in, in our relationship with not only South Korea, but also with Japan and Australia. And of course, we have things like the Deterrence Strategy Committee that meets very regularly, you know, and in fact, we have some upcoming meetings at the ministerial level coming up with the SCM, which uh, I think really uh, undergird the alliance. And I think we have not lost 
not only have we not lost attention to this, we've actually refocused attention on this. And so the work that we're doing to help develop a common operating picture, to increase our allies' understandings of strategic capabilities, tabletop exercises, all those sorts of things are really important. And the last thing that I will just say, because it was mentioned about China, and I would say I think the other important difference between our policy and policies that have put forward in the past is we're putting this policy forward with a focus on what the United States can do, working with our allies and partners. Uh, of course, China can play a positive and important role, and we would hope that it would, uh, including, by the way, enforcing UN sanctions, which it has done better in the past, and I, we would hope it would return to that. But we recognize that we may not have as positive of a role from China in this strategy. And so we will work with China. We will seek to do what we can with China on North Korea and denuclearization. And I won't get ahead of anything that's going to happen at a much higher level later today. But I think at the end of the day, our focus is on what can we do with our allies and partners in strong solidarity and making the region a safer and more stable place. Your uh, time is up, almost time is up. And by taking advantage of Madre's role, I want to end this session with uh, making two points. Number one is, I had a webinar with uh, Mr. Began one time, and what he said was very interesting because Biden administration endorsed Singapore declaration. So the point we can go back to, return to, is Hanoi. And Hanoi is not really total failure because we tested our exchange equation each other. So we can make change and then we can go back to Hanoi. And the second point I want to make is this declaration of ending war is not really paranoia or <laughs> Moon Jae-gum wants to have so eagerly. I don't think so. And as far as I know him and as far as I talk to Lua's people, they say this in between. They're trying to manage this situation, not to disturb anything and maintain this Stability, that's the minimum goal, if possible. If everything going well, with the help of China, then can be a dramatic change, but not really going for it. So it's not, you know, <laughs> and end of war democracy is life and death of Moon Jae-in government. Thank you very much, and thank you for the panelists. Thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.